Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. I started out optimistic, and I'm still optimistic, and I've seen enough changes to know that that optimism is justified. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. I am very honored and so excited that our guest today is the inimitable Sheila Birnbaum, a 1965 graduate of NYU Law and a partner at Quinn Emanuel. I am handing over my interviewing reins to Sheila's nieces, Sarah and Lauren Lubetsky, who have emerging professional identities of their own, but since the focus is on Sheila, we've committed to focus on her. And while Sheila certainly needs no introduction, anyone who knows her or of her would agree that she deserves one. Sheila has long been a leading force as a product liability defense lawyer, and in the legal profession at large, a stalwart enough to have earned the nickname Queen of Torts. Beyond being a commanding presence in the courtroom and at the law school where she was formerly a professor of law and an associate dean, Sheila brings with her, wherever she goes, unparalleled knowledge, leadership, and humanity. And I know from personal experience, a fierce wit. These traits must surely have been among the reasons that Sheila was appointed by Attorney General Eric Holder to be the special master of the 9-11 Special Victims Compensation Fund in 2011. It is Sheila with whom I conceived the Women's Leadership Network, and as NYU Law celebrates the 125th anniversary of graduating its first women students, there are few women more appropriate to have on this podcast than she. And it is now my great pleasure to hand the interviewing over to Sarah and Lauren to discuss Sheila's perception of the legal profession and give us some insight into their own Aunt Sheila. So welcome to all of you. Thank Thank you you so much, Jeannie. And Sheila, I know in previous conversations, you've talked a lot about um, your life growing up. And uh, I know you've mentioned before that there weren't a lot of women in the law at the time when when you entered it. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you even got the idea to go to law school. Well, that's always a good question to ask. And uh, I can't really say when I first wanted to go to law school. But my mother kept, your grandmother, <laughs> kept my sixth grade autograph book. And in my sixth grade autograph book, where it says profession, I wrote lawyer. Now, that was pretty odd in those days uh, because I knew no lawyers. There were no lawyers in our family, and there were no girls or women who wanted to be lawyers. But somehow I have a written record of the fact that as early as I could conceive of it, I wanted to be a lawyer. And for me, that was the right profession to choose. It's something I've always loved being a part of uh, and being involved in. So it was sort of, you can say, a childhood dream uh, that I was very lucky to fulfill. 
So then, can you can you tell us a little bit about your experience as a law student or a, a young attorney? Well, as a law student and a young attorney, women lawyers were rare, very rare, and there weren't many of us. When I graduated in 1965 from NYU, who which was a very progressive law school with regard to accepting women, there were 13 women in my class of over 365. And a number of them didn't practice law when they graduated. Uh, When I went out to try to get a job, there were lots of jobs that were closed to women that you couldn't even get an interview for. For example, uh, when I started in the DA's office, we were told women uh, could not do felonies or work on cases that were murders because somehow that would offend women, I guess. And in the U.S. Attorney's Office, believe it or not, women could not be hired on the criminal side, only the civil side. So women were okay to do appeals and things of that sort, but there was a great deal of prejudice that was right up front because people didn't have to hide what they were feeling. And what was very interesting is when I started out and I went to court, for example, the judges had so little expectations for a woman lawyer that when you could put three sentences together, they thought you were pretty brilliant. (laughs) So very soon, I was building a reputation because I could stand up in court and speak. I think it was a little more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe a little more. But, but, But the expectation level was non-existent because there were so few women uh, that they had been exposed to uh, in that time. In fact, in the whole of New York State, there were only three women judges when I started practicing law, and for a long time thereafter. So um, things were very different, but in a way, it was uh, an opportunity uh, to shine because there were these very low expectations. So as Sarah and I know, you've worn many hats, and Jeannie mentioned a few of them, from leading departments at your firm and sharing boards, to being an associate dean at NYU, to leading the 9-11 Special Victims Compensation Fund. So what skills have allowed you to perform across all of these varied, complex positions? The kinds of skills that any good uh, leader would have, or any good lawyer would have, or any good person would have. First of all, I have enormous respect for other people. I have respect for their ideas. I want to hear their ideas. And I want to incorporate them and their ideas in whatever I'm doing. We at the law firm, uh, when I was at Scadden and now at Quinn, we always worked in teams. We always worked in groups. Everybody from the paralegal to the senior partner was part of a group, and uh, there was no hierarchy. I remember when the new associates would come in and say to me, what do you expect from a second-year associate? And I would say, whatever you're capable of doing. I don't have any expectations. If you're really good, you could do what a fifth-year associate does. And if you're not so good, we'll help train you to make you better. 
So I think in part it's the ability to listen, it's the ability to respect other people's views, and it's the ability to make decisions. I mean, you know, we've always had these conversations among ourselves. It's harder to worry about the decision you're making than to make the decision. And I always felt, and I still feel, that you go with your background, your intelligence, your guts, and you make the decision. If the decision is wrong, you make another decision after you find out that's wrong. But the failure to make a decision or the worrying about making a decision is worse than making a decision very often. And I think women especially are reluctant to make decisions. They weigh a lot of things. They see a lot. They weigh a lot. They worry about the risks and the benefits. And they should, they should consider all those things. But making decisions is really important to help create a leadership responsibility. So um, I think the question is a very good one that I've never thought of, and I hope the answer uh, sort of is uh, more than satisfactory. It absolutely is. <laughs> you know, you've shared all these experiences with us now, and I'm wondering what you've learned about yourself as a, a lawyer, as a woman, um, over your years of practicing law. Well, I think it comes back again uh, to always trying to be part of the community you're in. Uh, whether it was the law school community, which I loved. I mean, one of the things I've loved the most is teaching law, and I did it for many, many years, first as a full-time professor and then as a part-time professor. I think it's also about learning about the law. Part of being a lawyer, for me, has been every day is different. Every day you're confronted with new problems and new issues, and every day brings something new and, to me at least, exciting and interesting. So I think as you had said before, Lauren, you love school. I always loved school. I always loved learning. I had been a fourth grade teacher before I went back to law school. And going back to law school was the best. I mean, uh, teaching the fourth grade was not really uh, my uh, forte. There was very little intellectual aspects to it. But going back to law school opened up all kinds of horizons uh, that you could do with the law. I mean, one of the things I always used to tell my students at the end of each semester was, you know, being a lawyer is a wonderful thing. You should find the type of law that most fits what you want to do, and you can do anything within the law. You can, if you like being alone a lot, become an estates lawyer. If you want to be with people and in the heat of battle, become a matrimonial lawyer. If you want to be an actress or an actor, become a trial lawyer. There, if you like numbers, become a deal lawyer. They are important to find the kind of law that will satisfy what your personality is and what your interests are. And I found that for me because uh, what I spent have spent most of my life in is in a cutting edge area of the law that keeps changing and evolving and creating uh, legal theories and aspects uh, that are always fresh and new. And so it always seems to be different, but always seems to be exciting. 
in all the years I've been doing it, it is still exciting, interesting, and when it stops being that, I'll stop doing it, but I don't think it will ever stop being that. It's funny, along those lines, I remember being a young girl and saying to you, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an actress or a lawyer, and you said, well then, be a lawyer, because you can do both at the same time. (laughs) Here that is. So thinking back to what motivated you to go into product liability, you spoke about passions within the field of law and really going along with your passion and finding that. So thinking back to what motivated you to go into product liability, how does that compare to what motivates you to continue your work today? Well, I think it's something of the same thing. Actually, I think very often you fall into things. Well, and I fell into products liability when I was in law school. Um, I was on the National Moot Court team and the Moot Court competition uh, at the law school. Uh, And the problem was products liability problem. It was a time when products liability was just emerging as a separate entity. And there were very important issues of tort law that were being developed. And that was the problem I worked on most of my senior year between the moot court competition and the national moot court. So I knew as much about the emerging product liability as almost anyone because I had spent so much time in those endeavors learning about it and it was all brand new. So when I got my first job, it turned out that one of the first cases I was given was a product liability case. And as they say, the rest is history. But it was serendipitous in a way that that all came together. But as I said before, one of the most exciting things about being in this area is it's constantly expanding and growing. For example, when I first started, we would have one plaintiff and one defendant in one court. Now I handle cases with thousands of plaintiffs and multi-district litigation and courts and, and cases in state court and federal court. And the type of cases have expanded uh, with the uh, increase in consumer goods and drugs and pharmaceuticals, and the theories keep changing. And it's all very new and exciting because it's not like um, you're a real estate lawyer and you do a closing. You know, you know how to do a closing. Every day there's new issues, and in the kinds of cases I am, a lot of crisis uh, management type issues in which you're dealing with media and press and trying to, at the same time, manage hundreds if not thousands of cases. So there are some interesting management issues that come up, interesting procedural issues, substantive issues, handling a co-defendant, working with co-defendant lawyers, handling plaintiff's lawyers, settling huge cases, Uh, and resolving them, arbitrating them. It goes on and on, but it stays fresh because the area is constantly evolving uh, and growing. So all I can say is I just hope other lawyers have the kind of experience I have, young people especially, and pick something that is going to continue to keep their interest and their passion. You're right, it's all about passion. 
If you have the passion, it's like not going to work. It's like going to do something you love to do. When it becomes work, it's not fun. <laughs> so you got to keep it fun. So on that note, you wear a lot of different hats. And do you ever get tired <laughs> or discouraged? I, how do you keep charging ahead? Well, I guess I'm blessed with a kind of personality uh, that is uh, positive, that when you get knocked down and you lose a case, and that to me is being knocked down, you pick yourself up and, you know, start another case. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have many more victories than failures, uh, so that always keeps you positive, and, and I like people, uh, so and react to people well and have built friendships all over the country with both plaintiff's lawyers, who are sometimes my adversaries and defendant's lawyers and judges. And in part, I always um, did a lot of pro bono legal and community work, which created another outlet for me to use the law and some of my skills and that too is something i recommend people do and i think part of the issues we have is young people are so overwhelmed with the amount of work that they don't go out and join bar associations professional organizations community organizations where they can expand their horizons and their life and use their skills in other ways. And there's a lot of pro bono work that gets done and NYU has been wonderful in creating all these clinical programs where students and young people can get involved and stay involved. And the Scadden Fellowship, which is part of setting up, is another way that young people can continue to be a part of the pro bono efforts that are so necessary and continue even now to be more necessary. So all I can tell you is, you know, get involved, stay involved, be involved, because it's important to your professional life, it's important to your your entire idea of who you are. And I'm lucky I don't get tired and I don't get discouraged. So you've long been an outspoken and vibrant supporter of women's advancement in the law, and you're known for reaching back and around you to other women in the law. What can those in the legal profession today, whether as practitioners or academics or even current students, do to change the legal profession moving forward? And how do we ensure that the legal world responds to the gender-related demands that are continually being placed on it? That's a very good question, and I think also, although women, and especially women in the law, have made enormous progress. I mean, when I look around me at the women who are leading law firms that are corporate general counsel, that are coming up through the corporate ranks, uh, the women who are judges in the highest courts in the land, including, uh, thank God, the Supreme Court of the United States, it encourages me. And, it, and I've always had this policy that when you open a door, you make sure that door stays open. So that if you've gone through the door, and I've had the privilege of being many firsts, the first woman associate dean at NYU, the first woman professor of law at Fordham Law School. You know, a lot of things that that opened up doors. And I always 
tried to keep the doors open for others and encourage others and create women's groups. Um, I started out in the, the Women's um, Association of Lawyers. We created uh, Metropolitan Women Law Professors Association when there were none and there were just a handful of women professors in the metropolitan area. And all those organizations helped open more doors. Um, so I really believe that all of us have an obligation and a responsibility to make sure that we get through the door. We keep those doors open everywhere and bring in fresh air. And I see that happening. I see that happening all over uh, the legal profession. I mean, we never had women leading major law firms. And now you look at firms like Cravath, and there's a woman managing partner, and there are many women managing partners. And when I was in law school, the thought of a woman being a dean of a law school was sort of very foreign. It was very foreign thinking of a woman that could be a professor of law. I had no women, not one woman professor, even a research, research uh, writer uh, when I went to law school. And now women deans are prevalent, women professors are all over the place, maybe not in the numbers they should be, there's still work to do for sure, but the doors are open and they should remain open, and we all have a responsibility to make sure of that. So I've been lucky uh, to have gone through many doors with the help of many people, men and women, when I first started out, people would say to me, well, who are your women mentors? And I would say, I don't have any because there were no women there. And in the beginning, my mentors were men. Uh, and they were very helpful and they advanced me, uh, whether it was at the firm or at the law school here. Uh, Dean McKay and others like him were very open and wanted to help women advance, succeed, and I think, you know, now we have a lot of work still, but it's different work. It's work that goes to family life and work life and the balance of them and how do we do that for all people, men and women. I mean, the burden of work can be overwhelming and that's not good for young people and it's not good for the law firm. So there are lots of things we still have to do, but we have come a long way, <laughs> baby. There's no question about that. <laughs> and I've been privileged to be part of that journey. And I'll continue doing it as long as I have the, uh, as you say, Sarah, the energy uh, to do it, which uh, is still there. <laughs> I don't know you two, Sarah and Lauren. I think I want to just officially hand over the interviewing reins to you all the time. <laughs> You're pretty effective at this. What was your experience as a law student? When I went to law school, it was very different than it is today. Uh, there were no women law professors. There were very few women students. There um, was uh, no women groups. Uh, you didn't have, like, law women like no, we have now. There were no law women. There was no, there was no thought of law women. There weren't enough women. We, I, I used to say we could meet in a telephone booth. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't have been a problem because there were so few women, and some of them had 
well, families already, and so they didn't hang around at the law school. And all the guys in your class remember you because I said, how do you guys all remember Sheila so well? And they were like, oh, but you don't understand. There weren't any women in our class. <laughs> well, there, were, there were a few of us, but but there were there were a few. And um, the men, and the, since there were no women professors, there were no sort of mentors, so that were women mentors. And the male professors, some of them were very sexist. Um, in some of the classes, they wouldn't call on women, but they would be like Women's Day. And in one class, I remember in crimes, when they had Women's Day, some of the cases were about rape. Now, mm -hmm. that was not accidental. Mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of things would never happen now. Uh, but we didn't even know. We couldn't complain because they'll... Who are you going to complain to? Well, well, we could have complained to the dean, but, you know, that was the norm. And there was no women's movement when I went to this law school because women hadn't gotten into a movement yet. We were just glad to be in law school. And, uh, and NYU was sort of ahead of a lot of other schools like Harvard and Yale. Harvard took in women much later than... 1950 was right. when they admitted women, right. can right. you imagine? NYU admitted women many, many, many years before that. Right. Uh, so the differences would be night and day. As you so say. you're saying that on Women's Day in class when they asked women questions, they actually made a point, like in crim law, of talking about issues that officially pertain to women? No, like sometimes rape? it did and some it didn't, but there was this crimes professor who was notorious for doing that and, wow. uh, and did do it. Uh, and he did it until he left. And it was in the 1970s when women started really coming to the professions and to law school, especially when the Vietnam War occurred, there were not enough men or women when the women's movement was starting and it all came mm -hmm. together. Uh, and that's when the women's law groups and women associated together uh, and it began to change significantly. But it was not until when I, when I was teaching here in the early 1980s, there were a handful of women on the faculty. Uh, there were only two tenured women, uh, Linda Silverman and Diane. And uh, no, and Diane wasn't even here yet. Uh, and Sylvia Law. Sylvia Law and Diane. What a and perfect and name. Linda <laughs> I know. Great name. Yeah, exactly. She had to become tenured. And Sylvia's since retired. I'm not sure. I may have been the third tenured woman here. Right. And um, and I had gotten my full professorship and tenure at Fordham and oh, came wow. here. As a, as a first a visiting professor. Was it Bob that brought you here, Bob McKay? Bob McKay did, and then um, he Redlick? left that year, and Redlick then was, was, the, was here when I was uh, uh, here most of the time, and he made me the associate dean of the graduate division, which was always fun. I hated taxes, <laughs> and uh, here I was, you know, helping uh, run the tax department, <laughs> among other things. So... Uh, Yes, the place is quite different, and uh, when I came back, it was even it sort of, it was changing, but still slowly. I see pictures, photographs from those days, and all the guys were dressed in the same dark suits oh, with yes. the skinny ties. How did you dress? Well, we didn't dress like we dress today. I mean, people, the guys wore suits, and women didn't wear pants. I mean... 
You were told not to go to court in pants. I didn't wear pants in court for years and years. I didn't want to affect my clients, you know, and the norm was uh, you didn't wear pants. That and and so you had to wear that, a skirt to court. Oh yes, you know you wore a skirt you had to or work dress. Like a lady. Yes, and heels. <laughs> uh, you had to look like a lady. Um, Pantyhose. And what's that? Pantyhose. Oh all yes, of all of the garters. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, and men, men wore ties and jackets. Hmm. And most of them still wear ties and jackets in court. So it, it's it's changed. So did you, there was obviously no sense of a woman's movement until the Vietnam War, from what you're saying. Did you have any connection to a woman's movement until at that point? No, not at all. I mean, you didn't think of yourself that way. It wasn't gendered. It wasn't gendered. You, You knew you were being, you knew you weren't getting things or being accepted in certain places because of your gender for years. Couldn't get into the private clubs unless you ate in in a separate women's dining room mm-hmm. uh, and then we started at that point the movement had started and began to be great pressure on various bar associations not to have their events in those kinds of clubs and that really started to change what the clubs had done uh, at that point um, so it was very different so I didn't feel connected to the women's movement when I was in law school at all. Uh, and as I said before, most of my mentors were men. I mean, I can't think of a woman mentor because there to... weren't. There were very few women in the law firms. I joined the New York Women's Bar Association. I could have joined immediately the city bar, uh, but it was almost impossible to get on committees and, you know, get assignments because that was... In, you know, all male as well. And, you know, years later in in the 80s, there were five or six of us women who got into all the positions because they needed women at that point. And uh, there were a whole small cadre of us uh, that worked had already graduated and was active in the profession. And uh, so, so it was a it, it was, you began to see those changes. There's something really interesting that happened to women who've gone through that, and even to some degree, women of my generation, because I leaked down to me too. There's a split. So some of us decided to mentor other women, and then there's others that kind of decided, a la Clarence Thomas, that, you know, women were kind of on their own. Right. And, you know, our friend. Judy Kay was like that. She's like, listen, I don't, I, you know, women are, they can almost be hazed. They're on their own. So you haven't fallen into that camp. You help other women, and very specifically. So why? Well, I think it's your personality. I think it's uh, how you approach the issue. Um, I always joined women's groups when they started coming about. I helped create the Metropolitan Women's Law. Um, association was very very active in the New York Women's Bar Association. I was uh, was one of the founders of uh, uh, the Judges and Lawyers uh, Breast Cancer Alert. First, I thought it was important for women to hang out together because that uh, would improve the situation for all women. I mean, mm-hmm. part of being in the New York Women's Bar, uh, where I was president. 
and then a lot of my friends followed. We could put pressure on um, the administration, on uh, the judiciary to appoint women judges. We, we had programs on how to become a judge. I mean, it was really an important way to make the kinds of changes. We were active in changing uh, the rape laws and doing away with corroboration and those domestic relations, uh, no-fault divorce. I mean, through these kinds of groups, we began to organize and bring pressure to bear uh, to make these changes. I remember seeing your name on the books on that rape law and just going, what? That was, that's our <laughs> Sheila Birnbaum. Um, <laughs> that was very cool. Thank you for doing that. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad that you've been one of those kind of women, by the way, uh, who's you. bonded together, because I do think that there's uh, power, in, uh, power in numbers. And uh, you've been, obviously, as I know personally, uh, a key force in the Women's Leadership Network. So do you want to speak to that, what we're doing to combat these challenges? Sure. I think the challenges are very different now, but I think women still face challenges that men do not. And in part, I think the Women's Legal Network is to help women overcome any of the challenges they have so we can have a really equal playing field. And if we can do that for women students, that will take them through to the time they go into the profession, whether they're going to do pro, pro bono type work or legal aid work or big firm work or government work or corporate work. I think it goes to the things we've been talking about, to leadership, how to create in women the feeling that they're worthy, that they have leadership skills, that they will be the leaders of the profession. And I think women still question themselves differently uh, than men do. And I think part of what the Women's Leadership Network will do is provide the help that women might need to overcome whatever challenges they have personally or still in the profession, uh, and to help them create an environment where there will be real equality, and also to help this work, help them deal with this work-family balance, which I think is a very big issue today for young women and young men, too. I mean, I, I think this is an issue for both of them. And in part, what is different than when I went to out in the profession is at least with computers and with technology, you can take your work home. <laughs> you can be with your children, and then later in the day, later in the evening, you can continue to work. That helps a little. Mm -hmm. When I started, we were in the office every weekend. I mean, there was no technology. We still wrote with a pen. Uh, you know, no one writes with a I pen. I know legal pads. Yeah, yeah, I love yellow legal pads. I still need I still do, too. I love them, too, actually. <laughs> and uh, I think that um, these are things that we have to work on, and these are things we have to. And, and some firms are doing that. Mm -hmm. And you remember, we met with a lot of, of the leaders, men leaders of law firms who are very interested in in how to make life better for both women and men associates. So so I think there's a lot still that needs to be done and Those I'm power hoping, brokers. And I'm hoping that the Women Leadership Network will help accomplish that. Um, institutions, law schools, law firms, public policy. I think there's a lot of big gaps. What can't we do when we think about this is a slow moving kind of change 
And what can we do? When we think about these institutions, these big institutions, we've been talking a lot about what we can do just in small ways, like what we can do to help women. Um, but when we think about it from an institutional perspective, what can we do about from that big perspective? Well, I think actually we have a lot to learn from corporations who have, I think before the law firms, and many of the large corporations really look toward diversity, look toward issues of uh, work-life balance, uh, working at home, you know, during certain periods, although I know that there's going back to coming back to work, which <laughs> I happen to believe in. I, I think it's very important for people to congregate in a place where they could exchange ideas. And if you're all working at home from a distance, you are losing out on so much, uh, both socially and idea-wise. You miss people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and sooner or later, we're going to stop learning to talk because everybody is going to be typing. Although by then, we're going to have computers that are only going to work by talking. <laughs> so I think talking will come back into vogue. <laughs> we can only hope. <laughs> but I think, you know, the, the socialization of, of people is lost when the associate next door to me is typing me a question or an answer. Get up and, and come and see and me. Come see me. I want to talk to you. I want to see your face. Right. You know, I think those things are important. I mean, it creates relationships. Mm-hmm. And nobody should doubt that the law business and all business is about relationships. And we're not teaching people, young people, that because they're all stuck in their computers. They're all stuck on their iPhones. And... Um, they got to get out of their iPhones and start talking to each other instead of, you know, talking through um, through through their computers. Can I embroider that and put it on a pillow? Yeah. <laughs> I really believe that. I mean, I, I do too. I think it's just when I see five young women sitting at a table, and they're all and they're looking all at their, their computers, at their iPhones. Instead of talking to each other, and then eventually they put it down. But I have it with Lauren all the time. She'll come to the dinner table. And she'll put two two iPhones down. Oh yeah. And I say, okay, Lauren, you're busted. Yeah, one person. <laughs> I say, if it's if I don't have to have an iPhone, I'm much more important than you. There you put go, your Lauren. iPhone away. <laughs> I have to tell you, Sheila, we gave you the Weinfeld Award this year. You did. Thank you. And. My next question, we always, we always ask this question at the end, but before I do, I want to tell you that you said something at the Weinfeld Gala. Um, you said, I deserve this award. I deserve the Weinfeld Award. And I got goosebumps when I heard you say that because I loved the idea of somebody standing up in a crowd of 400 people saying, I deserve this award. I loved the idea of a woman standing up in front of a room full of people saying, I deserve this. I feel like very often we think that we're not worthy. And I could stop frame at any point, at any paragraph, at any sentence of anything you've said. And I think that it's something to mull over and worthy advice. That particular bit stuck with me for days afterwards. I think that it was useful for me just to think, oh, you know what? I deserve this. This is useful praise. And then you explained why. And you had a very good, very valid reason for why you deserve that award, of course. 
But I think that's good advice. Um, I wondered if you had other sound advice that you've received from someone who came before you. Well, I think the important thing is for women to feel they're worthy. Mm-hmm. A lot of women, is, men don't seem to have this issue. Men come out of the womb worthy. Uh, <laughs> women, on the other hand, have to earn their worthiness. They, are, they question themselves more. They, they question their ability more. What women have to do, especially women lawyers, is they have to believe that they should be in the room. And not only that they should be in the room, that that should be one of the leaders in the room. And you just can't sit back and sort of be shy about it because then people won't recognize the skills, the leadership that you have. And I see many young women very confident in who they are and what they are and what they know. And my two nieces are two of those women. They, they have grown up and gone to graduate school, and they're very confident in who they are and what they know, and they're going to do very well at their given professions, which unfortunately are not lawyers, but <laughs> I failed at that point. Give them time, Sheila, give them time. <laughs> You're right. So Sooner or later, they'll come back. Uh, but I think that's what's really important for women. I've seen so many women over the years who didn't feel they were worthy, that didn't feel they were as good as they were. And that's unfortunate because that's something... We have to make sure women understand they are good. They should be in the room. They should be leaders. They should be getting the same pay as men are. And if they're not, they should not stay where they are. If they're not going to be recognized for the talented people they are, they should find other places. And I've also I told my students that if you're unhappy with what you're doing, there's plenty of law jobs. You know, don't stay where you're not appreciated where your worth is not recognized. And I think that's good advice. And uh, I think I see more and more of it with women with confidence and ability. They're going to do very well, and they're going to be very successful, as they should be. And in a number of years, we're going to see many more women running law firms, being rainmakers. When I first started making some rain, it was like a big deal. It's not a big deal anymore. There are lots of women who have clients, who bring in clients, who service clients in a way that makes them important to the law firm or to their government service or to whatever they're doing. So I'm very optimistic for the future of women in the law, for women in business, for women in in all the kinds of professions uh, that they engage in. And I think um, we're going to continue to make that progress, and there will be equality. I hope to live long enough to see it, uh, even more so than it is today. But I started out optimistic, and I'm still optimistic, and I've seen enough changes to know that that optimism is justified. I'm going to stick one more question in here, Sheila. Okay. Your mom saved that autograph book. (laughs) I wonder what your little Sheila self would think of you now, and even maybe more important, what would your mom think of you now? Well, I think my mom was always very proud. Uh, my 
parents and especially my grandmother who lived with us always told me I could do whatever I wanted to do. There was no, there was no effort to tell me that I couldn't succeed at whatever I wanted to do. And that was very important. I mean, it's really, I was a very thin, young <laughs> person. I was, I was 20 when I graduated college. I was 16 when I went into college. But I never thought that things should be closed to me, that I could do anything. And for a very long time, I did what other people thought I should do be a teacher, get married, you know. And then one day I woke up and said, I got to do what I want to do, which is be a lawyer. And that changed my life in every way, uh, for the better and for the positive. And the last piece of advice I would leave with people is do what your passions bring you to, and you'll always be happy at what you do. You know, I'm not a big believer in the afterlife stories, but I, th- I think that your mom would be very proud of you. Oh, I know no we question are too. about that. Uh, yeah. No question about that. For my first 20 years of my life, I lived with my sister in the living room. No, we, we were pretty not well off. <laughs> yeah, Those are, that's very important to understand. That but the, the important thing was there was family who loved you and wanted you to succeed. Mm-hmm. My, my father always used to say, I got $3 million, I got three kids, <laughs> and they're all going to college, and that's $3 million. He always thought he was a millionaire. And it was, um, it was the American dream. It was the total American dream that's still being relived every day in the city. I'm, I support Hunter College because that's where I graduated from, but that's where the American dream is being done on, with immigrant families every day. It's, 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 you go, it's like every language under the sun, every immigrant in the city, and all they want is what my parents wanted for me and I wanted, college education and improve your life. And it's going on. It's, it's really a wonderful city in that regard. Education is the royal they, path. That is the royal path. It and, really is. Yeah. These sure. kids have been very lucky because they've, had it, you know. Because of your support. <laughs> well, that was good. That was that was what I should be doing, and that's what, you know, you took advantage of it, and, and um, very well, <laughs> to speak. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, all three, for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for it's having incredible. us. It was so Thank much you. fun to hear this. I have a feeling I'm, this is one that I'm going to listen to again and again. <laughs> well, you, you're just wonderful. And uh, thank really you for inviting us to do this. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash women's leadership.